Welcome back to our growing experiment. We're here with Phil from Beautiful Field Farm. Phil, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. So I'm Phil Beauchamp. I'm the owner of uh, Beautiful Fields Farms. That's a, a name change just in the last year. Prior to that, it was uh, Lewis Hardy Fruit Trees, which I think some people might be more familiar with in the, uh, in the community. Ron, Ron Lewis previously ran the business, I think since 1982 or something like that. So um, it was always just like the best kept secret in Sudbury, just this really small backyard kind of nursery selling hardy fruit trees and things like that. So um, in the last kind of, I think three, four years since I've taken over, it's really been uh, booming. We modernized some stuff, brought some stuff online and it just seems to be uh, huge demands. And I'm doing, uh, you know, some different farming activities and different kind of stuff here on the land. So I uh, changed the name to kind of reflect reflect that kind of change in the, what we're doing. Yeah, so being that you're, uh, you're selling trees, how do you get the fruit tree started? Are you starting from like a seed or are you kind of grafting off of uh, trees or? Yeah, so that's where, the, that's where we're seeing this, this shift in the business model. So historically, I mean, Ron just bought the hardy trees from the uh, prairie nurseries. So they were started as trees. They'd come over, you know, on a big semi-truck. We'd unload them and, and kind of retail them all here. So that's still a big, that's still a big part of it. Most of the trees do come, you know, via semi-truck, you know, for retail. But uh, over the last two years, I've started some on-site propagation and doing different stuff like that. Okay. And so when you're doing the on-site propagation, that's where you're, you're taking uh, part of another tree or because you're not starting from seed, right? Right. So it all depends on the variety, right? So most of the, um, like the small, most of the small bushes, we, we, like, we sell far more than just apple trees, right? We sell apples, pears, plums, cherries. You know, we send a lot, a lot of shrubs, blueberries, um, high bush cranberries, hascaps, different things like that. So different, um, different plants are propagated different ways, right? So a lot of the, um, the small shrubs and stuff, I'm doing um, uh, cuttings you know, and then cloning them. So either um, hardwood cuttings or semi-softwood cuttings at different times of the season into some different beds here. And then the fruit trees we grow out from, uh, you would start the rootstock separate and then you would graft it onto the rootstock. So when it comes to the larger trees, they're all grafted onto a hardy rootstock with the desirable variety on the, the top half of the tree. So I bought, I've been buying um, rootstock the first couple of years and try, trying to get some of them going out in the ground. And then uh, I have a rootstock bed I'm trying, and I'm trying to grow out some uh, crabapple rootstock myself. Okay. And so the, the rootstock bed, oh, I guess. A little bit uh, of everything. Sorry? I like a little bit of everything, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can get, I, yeah, we can definitely get into the rootstock conversation. It gets a little bit, some of it gets a little bit technical. So, most um, hardy fruit trees or, or most any, actually any apple tree, let's just use apples for an example. Every single apple tree is, is grafted onto a rootstock, whether it's a, you know, a Macintosh, Empire, a Gala, all those names you're familiar with, they're all grafted onto a rootstock. So the rootstock gives the tree more vigor, more disease resistance, you know, different properties that are more desirable for the tree. They're grafted onto the rootstock and then grown out, right? So you know, in Southern Ontario and different places, they use different rootstock than the ones we use for Northern Ontario. So I usually, I usually try to use just um, bud rootstock, it's called. It's a like B-series rootstock. It's from Russia. 
and it's like the hardiest root stock that they've they've developed over the last period of time. So I do have some some root stock that I purchased like that, and I'm looking to um, clone them into new trees. So there's an interesting thing called a stool bed where you kind of plant the tree sideways in the ground, and then you'll cover it slowly with wood chips and let it set up new branches and suckers. And then you're going to slowly keep kind of layering it with more wood chips. This is like a layering technique you can do to propagate kind of any, most plants really. And then that area that's covered starts to develop roots. So then within another season, you can go back, take away the wood chips, and then you can trim off all the rooted pieces, replant and grow them out. So that's how um, rootstocks clone because you can't even, you can't even grow a rootstock from a seed. The thing with apples in particular, any of these fruits is that the, the fruits aren't true to seed. So because they've all been, all been grafted along the way, or they're just the way that cross-pollination works, it's not going to have the properties of the, like, like cross-pollination with any sort of fruit, it's not, or any sort of garden vegetable, right? It's not going to have the properties of the, only the apple it comes with, but the pollen it donated from for the to create the fruit. So it's going to have properties of both those things. So depending on what, you know, how it's pollinated, it's going to have very different characteristics. Right. So, yeah. Right. yeah, so we have to clone those rootstocks through some, you know, a layering technique or, you know, different kind of, I mean, in the big labs, they would do it with tissue cultures and different kind of things like this. Okay. So uh, I, I guess that makes sense because I guess basically when you're buying apples, if you're if you're getting an apple that you don't know where the pollination happened and stuff, and you're going to get a very different apple than say what you're used to or what might be sort of appealing to you, right? I guess that's kind of the idea. It's sort of a quality control idea. Yeah. So you have a desire, you know, and Macintosh Chapel has desired qualities that people like for eating, you know, desired disease, disease resistance on the trees. So, yeah, so they just clone that. So every Macintosh apple comes from the exact same tree genetic wise, mm -hmm. you know, so if you, if you come home and you cut your, you cut your apple open and you, you know, you plant your seeds, you're going to get a cross between a Macintosh and something else, probably some sort of crab apple that was planted in the orchard for a pollen donor, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Since a Macintosh and a Macintosh won't cross-pollinate because they're essentially clones of each other, right? So they'll have some other variety planted in the orchard, you know, likely some sort of crab or something that's, you know, got really heavy blooms to pollinate. So then your apple will have those kind of characteristics. Okay. And so it sounds to me then like uh, if you're getting apples or other kind of fruit off your tree, it sounds like you need the pollinators there. So that's why the crab apples you were yeah. saying were there. So I guess they're, they're more abundant producers of pollen than say a Macintosh or a different kind of apple tree. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. Right. So, you know, on your, when you're on a commercial scale, you know, they probably, you know, need to know for sure. Right. So they, you know, probably use trees like that. You know, a home, a home orchard, any sort of second apple tree will generally work, you know, as long as you have a second variety for pollination. So having those around, you know, planting extras, stuff like that. So then the other, when it comes to rootstock, if we go back to that, the other option for rootstock is not just cloning these kind of, you know, superior genetic rootstock, is just planting a bunch of crabapple trees from a, you know, mangy crabapple that's somewhere here, letting that, letting those grow up. And then you can use those crabapples at rootstock because we know that, you know, that tree's 
you know, lives in this kind of condition, right? Right, right. So it's, it's really taking it from a plant that's adapted to the area already. So that's the, the hardy part of the rootstock, I guess you were, you were talking about there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I have, so I have some rootstock growing out and then, then you do the, you do the grafting where you're, you know, you're attaching the, you know, the desirable tree into the, into the rootstock, you know, you make a small, small notch and kind of, you know, attach it in and it seals itself within a year or two and grows out to the new tree. So that's the propagating of the, the large apples and stuff like that that I'm trying to incorporate here on site. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've seen trees in the, in the store before where they'll have like, uh, say, four or five different kinds of fruit all on the same tree. And when you buy it, it all looks really small. And I got to wonder, does that grow out to be like a, a full size tree? Will it bear like, say, fruit, like say a, a regular one or a mono kind of apple uh, tree would or? Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, we we sell some uh, four in one trees and three in one trees, and I've certainly done a lot of that. You know, my home orchard, a lot of uh, top work or grafting. You know, different varieties onto the tree, and it's something I quite enjoy doing. So, yeah, to do that, I mean, you just have to be really particular when you're pruning the trees for the first few years, so that you're keeping it balanced, so that each branch, you know, grows to kind of a balanced amount. You know, if you if you buy a three in one tree and just kind of neglect it, those smaller lower branches will probably never be your main fruiting branches and the whole top of the tree will grow out. And then most of your apples on that tree will be like that. So right. once you've got yeah, once you have the successful graphs, you need to kind of shape those main branches. Okay. And so I, I guess it's, uh, that makes sense. Like with any other kind of plant, you would want to sort of get rid of some of the leaves if they're preventing uh, getting at the lower branches and stuff where you're going to have uh, production issues, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, definitely when it comes to, I mean, when it comes to, you know, um, pruning apple trees or pruning any sort of shrubs or any sort of trees, that's, that's something we, um, we get a lot of questions on. We cover quite a bit. Sometimes, well, oftentimes we have education sessions here. So we'll usually try to do, um, uh, some grafting workshops and some pruning workshops in the spring and then just uh, some online content related to that kind of thing to just um, offer offer that education piece because it's something that uh, most people don't feel comfortable with you know and, and they're reluctant to do right so you know you could make a, a strong argument for you know pruning badly is sometimes better than not pruning at all where you know if you're just not pruning them you know it's really gonna cause them some other issues right Mm -hmm. and so, so least, like uh least... with when you're pruning there so it's just like you're kind of trying to make make sure that uh there's not too much say leaves on the upper branches and then also are you trying to like regulate sort of the branch length to some degree like how much shaping do you really do and then another thing i would like to ask you on top of that is uh one of my concerns as a person who hasn't done any pruning or uh even just does a little bit of garden pruning I always worry that like I'm going to hurt the plant or it'll be an entry point for disease. So uh, how does that all kind of factor into the pruning? Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of things to consider, you know, now we're getting into serious pruning discussion. So the first thing is the time of year, right? So pruning while the tree's still dormant or just coming out of dormancy is one of your best times. Oftentimes I like to wait till they're just starting to come out of dormancy because you can actually distinguish between the leaf buds and the fruit buds. So sometimes you take that into consideration when you're when you're pruning. Sometimes if you have a you know a nice branch with lots of fruit buds, you may end up leaving it. But anytime when it's dormant is ideal. You know, kind of the sooner the better. 
not necessarily the dead of winter, you know, so pretty much where we are now is kind of starting to get into ideal kind of pruning time. So by doing it at the right time, it gives the tree a chance to heal it off before it, um, before it becomes a portal for infection, you know, microorganisms, fungus, pests, they're not very active right now, you know, so it's not going to get into it as much. And then it gives the tree a chance to wake up and kind of, you know, it's not like you hacked off its arm while it was still awake, you know, it kind of came out of surgery and has a chance to heal, right? So it doesn't stress it as much as, you know, if you hack somebody's arm off while they're wide awake, you know? Right. So by doing it at that kind of year, it really helps. So that's kind of how you can eliminate those problems. You know, there are sometimes reasons to prune at other times of the year, you know, if you do want to, you know, suppress some growth or stress your tree. You know, the thing that's very important is that anything that's disease dead or damaged needs to be pruned right away. So regardless of time of year, you know, so don't hesitate to cut off anything like that. That's kind of the, the one kind of rule of pruning. Anything dead, disease damaged needs to come off right away. There's no point, you know, speculating, waiting, you know, it, especially if it's not, a, you know, a main tree, you know, there's ways to, there's ways to kind of heal or fix a tree, you know, that you can try for damaged branches, but Ideally, if you can, it's best to just prune it off, right? So the other thing to help it heal is by knowing where to make your cut. At, this, at, at a branch, it, the first kind of quarter inch or so, half a centimeter is what they call the collar, where it starts flaring out a little bit and then comes out skinnier the rest of the way. So when you're pruning, you want to cut right at the end of that collar. So you want to cut it about, you know, half a centimeter, quarter centimeter, an eighth of an inch, however big your, your collar is. And by cutting right at that collar, that collar tissue grows and covers that hole quickly. If you cut back into the collar where you're cutting the collar off, then it doesn't heal as well. It's, you know, usually gangly and a big portal for infection. If you cut too long, it's going to heal back to the collar and that little tip is going to start blackening and deading and rotting, you know, so knowing where to make your cut is important. And then using clean equipment, you know, so, you know, I try to wipe my you know, wipe my pruners off between every, you know, between every tree or every couple trees, especially if there's a tree, I think, you know, I'm a little bit worried about, you know, with like a, you know, anything I've read just about anything between, you know, peroxide, alcohol, bleach, vinegar, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, something just give it a quick, a quick wipe in between and then using a good, a good sharp pruner, right? So they make, they make a pruner called a anvil pruner where it's got a sharp section goes to a flat section. Those are, those are terrible. I'm not even sure why they manufacture those. So you want a bypass pruner that cuts across like scissors, you know, and a nice good sharp one that's tight so that it's not leaving, you know, mangly pieces. Mm. You know, we've all tried to cut things with, you know, a terrible pair of scissors and it just kind of massacres, right? Yeah. So making sure you're making a nice clean cut is the best way to, you know, prevent any of those problems when it comes to pruning. And you had asked about, about shaping, how much shaping needs to be done in that. So ideally when you buy it, when you buy a tree, the first couple of years is really focused on having your tree established and shaping it. So uh, most of our trees, we, we try to, you know, when time permits to have them all pruned before they come out to you. So oftentimes people are surprised the prune, the trees are cut back a little bit smaller and less side branches than they would expect when you go buy it from other nurseries or other places, right? And the reason for that is that you really want to develop that, that strong, you know, form and scaffolding right from the start, because it's very hard to correct once, once the tree's been growing out. 
you know, so when it comes to, you know, maximum production and growth and I, you know, ideal for these kind of fruit trees is, yeah, there's a, there's a bit of a technique to it. You want to aim for usually about four to six good side lateral branches. And you want to pick them, you know, chest height or somewhere around there where that's going to be kind of the final height of the branches. You know, the branches aren't going to grow up and down anymore, right? So if they're about that height, they're ideal for picking, right? So having a 20 foot tall apple tree with apples way up at the top, you know, it's, hard, it's super hard to pick. You know, you want to climb up on a, a ladder, you know. Ideally, you want to be using them as much fruit as you can. So by keeping your tree that kind of 10 foot height, you know, will help with the, that. So definitely picking those branches, those lateral branches to grow. And then you want to look for the right angle on the branch. So it needs to be usually between 45 and 60 degrees. If it's coming kind of straight up like this or coming too low, it's in the future, it's going to be a weak branch. So if it's, if you imagine it's like this, as it grows, the collar kind of comes in here and it creates a portal for, for splitting. And if it's just too low, it has a tendency to split off too. So what we try to do when we're selecting the main branches is you, the other thing is you look kind of straight down on the tree, try to pick branches that are about 90 degrees from each other, you know, in different cardinal directions so that they aren't gonna shadow each other in the future. And then four to six branches kind of like that. For the first couple of years, it's just to give it that, that shape. And then there's, I mean, there's lots more when it comes to, you know, the annual pruning and stuff like that, but that's the shaping you were doing in the first couple of years. That's, that's quite important for the long-term potential of your tree and your long-term, you know, fruiting and production. When do you usually start getting fruit on the tree? I guess it probably depends which fruit tree. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely depends on which, which fruit tree. Most of the apple trees, like the three to five years is when a tree will start producing fruit generally. Most of the trees, by the time they're here and ready for sale, they're usually about three years old. So oftentimes they'll flower and fruit the first or second year. What we recommend is the, the first year, it's unfortunate, but you should really take them all off. You know, it just stresses the tree, you know, too much to make fruit, right? You want it to really get established, you know? Sometimes I'll tell people, you know, I know most people won't do it. So I'll tell them, you know, leave one or two so you can try the apple, right? Yeah. Ideally take them all off, but go ahead and leave one and two. The second year you want to, you know, at least thin about half so that it's not, you know, still getting a chance to really grow out. And then after that, you can let it go kind of full steam ahead. So usually, you know, usually within the second or third season, you're starting to get some apples from the, the trees we sell. Apples anyways, most of the shrubs will fruit the same year you know, you'll get a, you know, a decent little harvest. And then um, same thing with the other big trees, pears, pears and plums. Those are the other big tree varieties we sell usually within a couple of years. Okay. And then, uh, so I imagine you must have a, a bunch of fruit trees yourself. And uh, that being the case, because it's a seasonal thing, you must do a lot of preserving. So uh, how do you, do, how do you go about that? <laughs> do you do much of it? I wish I did. I wish I did. I do a lot of, uh, I do, I do a lot of giving away, you know, the last couple of years since, you know, the business has been a bit bigger. I've been starting to just sell a little bit of the fruit at that, that time of year, mm -hmm. you know, but uh, prior to that, I do just a lot of, uh, a lot of baking, a lot of, you know, I'll make half a dozen pies, maybe a dozen, two dozen pies, freeze them. I like to make crisps. They're super easy, you know, I don't have to fiddle, fiddle with the crusts, you know, so yeah. just put them right through the food processor skin on and you know bake a bunch of crisps stuff like that um 
so the apples can store quite a bit if you're you know if you take them you know at the prime time you store them in ideal conditions so you can get up to 20 weeks sometimes on some apples so you know you can store quite a bit and eat them throughout the season as well yeah well it's funny because the reason we asked that question is in the last conversation we had with the Sudbury market we were you know talking about preserving and everything and then uh the conversation about fruit came up and um <laughs> And she mentioned that she buys apples at the end of the season and she'll just preserve a bunch so that she's still eating local during the winter. Yeah. So it's uh, it's an interesting thought that we've been kind of thinking about. So it's interesting, you know, talking about fruit trees and everything and where our mind is shifting is trying to figure out ways where we can eat that all year long. So preserving yeah. would be a good way to do that, right? Definitely, yeah. I'd say, you know, anything when it comes to the kitchen is not a homesteading skill I excel at so unfortunately I don't do you know much of that preserving and stuff like that although you know it would be great mm -hmm. you know the um the, all the berries all the everything else you know makes excellent jams and preserves yeah you know. well and then speaking of berries that's kind of a good segue into uh I found a couple of little strawberries uh in our yard by the fence they're in a a fairly shaded area but I was surprised to find them so there was probably three or four little areas where I could see like flowers or strawberries coming up. What could I do to maybe help those strawberries thrive a little bit more so I could kind of create a strawberry patch there? Or should I just plant more strawberries that's already like in there with those ones or? Well, yeah, is that location like desirable for long-term or is it, you know, close to a fence line, close to something you're going to be doing, right? This is- uh, So it's, it's like, it could be a long-term place. Like it's kind of out of the way, which I don't mind. Yeah. Okay. And, and if you grow in the, like, and then we always recommend growing it out and making sure it's a desirable strawberry. Like, mm. you know, is it something that you, that you, that you like that a variety you want before, you know, we consider even, you know, saving it or moving it, you know, strawberries, depending on the variety, will throw off a runner halfway through the season. They'll throw off a small little vine. It'll reroot itself in the ground. The easiest way is to move those move those runners. You know they're you know they're pretty much not even rooted when they first come out. So you can grab those runners and start placing them anywhere you want. Otherwise, for strawberries, like you say, they get tangled up and lost in everything. Right? They're very very low to the ground and stuff around. They don't compete well. So generally, any strawberry bed you want to be mulched really heavily. So just mulching everything around it. And usually when I, when I mulch or what I recommend is putting down a layer of uh, either newspaper or cardboard before your mulch. And it just helps you really smother the little grass, or whatever else is around, you know? So if you want, yeah, if you wanted to, you know, keep those where they are, you could, you know, mulch around them and kind of let them go, or you could just start moving the runners to a different location. You okay. Can, you know, you can always, you know, you can always dig them up and, and try moving them too. You know, it all depends on time of year and how much roots you get. Generally, the earlier you can move anything, the, the better, you okay. know, so if you can get it out of the ground before it started even blooming and you know kind of where it is and where the roots are, you can, you know, dig it up and move it and it should be happy to wake up in its new location. Yeah, it's really cool because it sounds like uh, getting started out in gardening and stuff like that. I always worried that stuff was really easy to kill, but it sounds like things are fairly resilient and as long as you go about it the right way, you can actually... Uh, sculpt shape move transport whatever a lot of these plants to a lot of different places especially with yeah. these fruit trees yeah it would definitely once if it's if it's dormant you can you can definitely you know you can definitely do it 
You know, a lot of the, um, the fruit trees we, we sell or the ones we buy, they actually come bare rooted. So they come on the truck, just a stick with no, you know, the roots are just kind of dangling out, exposed to air, no, you know, no nothing, no dirt attached. You know, they are usually put in some sort of peat moss and wrapped just in case they come out of dormancy, but they're stored at these places just in a cold storage like that with roots exposed, right? So once it's dormant, it, you know, it doesn't need anything. So, but once it starts waking up, once it's growing, those roots are super susceptible to drying out or damage or things like that. So if you move stuff early in the season, it's, you know, it's usually pretty, pretty straightforward. The trouble comes when you start splitting stuff or moving stuff, you know, in the middle of the growing season, you know, then they, you know, you're very unlikely to have any success with that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because that kind of really changes a lot about how I looked at those plants and what you could kind of do with them and stuff like thinking about as long as they're sort of dormant or kind of like asleep almost, you can move them. But when, when they're in sort of uh, the budding of life or whatever, you can't cut them down or they won't come back. Yeah, exactly. It gets to be much, much harder to, you know, to move them and keep them alive. You know, they're more susceptible to problems and things like that. So that's why our season starts quite early, you know, or, you know, we start usually in in April or, you know, end of or start of May or end of April with selling the trees. And by June, you know, when most of the garden centers are really getting into full swing, we're pretty much, you know, starting to close down for the season. Yeah. Like it's ideal to get the trees in the ground. That's a, you know, a conversation I have with everybody when they pick up their tree, you know, I tell them to get them in the ground right away. And they say, well, maybe I'll keep it in the garage for a month till it gets better. And I say, you know, please don't, you know, mm -hmm get it in the ground as soon as you can. Like it wants to wake up in his new location and kind of grow there, right? So getting getting your big trees, you know, into the ground as soon as, soon as possible is, you know, the very best thing for them. So early spring would be the best time to plant trees and shrubs? Yeah. Because I yeah, as, as soon as, as, I would say like what's always said is as soon as the ground's workable, like as, as sooner the better, mm -hmm. right? So if you can get a shovel in the ground in March in some location and you have a tree you want to move, then then great, you know? Oftentimes the ground's still frozen solid till mid-April or so. But yeah, the, as soon as you can kind of get it and move it is, is the best time. Yeah. Do you do any other type of gardening? I have a small small vegetable garden that I kind of attempt. It's, it's not um, hugely productive, but the... Uh, the fruit is, you know, the big thing I do, the fruits, the berries, the shrubs. I generally have pretty much one of everything I, I sell planted, you know, so I have some experience with, with growing everything. I try to, you know, we try to test and choose varieties that we enjoy ourselves that we're no successful, you know. So if I bring in a variety and grow it out a couple of years and, you know, it's not doing well, it's not one I'm going to sell, you know. Or varieties that grow out and, you know, I don't find the apple very good or it's a low you know, just doesn't produce very well. It's not one will sell. So we do, we do that kind of on-site testing and, and experimenting with everything we grow. So, yeah, and that's really important too because I think you know you got to have a, we got to have a plant or a tree that really wants to grow in this area, right? And like you got to kind of test it out a little bit, especially uh, considering if you're getting them from somewhere else and they started off in a slightly different environment. Like every little bit is different, the soil and all that. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's choosing. Choosing the tree you're going to plant or the shrub you're going to plant is, you know, one of the most important things, you know, 
oftentimes, you know, that people will sell anything, right? So a lot of the kind of pop-up garden centers sell, you know, you could buy a Empire or a Gala or a, you know, Macintosh Apple or things that aren't particularly hardy. You, know, you, could, you could buy them and it might live for a couple seasons, but it's not going to be long-term successful. You know, it's not going to be as productive. Mm-hmm. You know, so being mindful of the variety you're buying and, and oftentimes the rootstock is grafted on, you know, if it's grafted onto, um, you know, an Ottawa or Minnesota series rootstock or things like that, they're not going to be as hardy, you know? Yeah, totally different climate. And uh, another thing that I seen uh, on your page there that I thought was really cool was the rocket mass heater you guys had in your greenhouse. I've heard about these things a couple of times and they seem like they're really cool and really like efficient when it comes to how much fuel you're using versus how much heat you get. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So that's a fun little experiment. Like I said, you know, I have where I'm located, I have 70 acres, you know, so I do a little bit of, you know, the fruit trees and that's the main, the main thing. I do do a lot of other little stuff I like to dabble in, you know, so we have, you know, we have chickens out back. I graze some pigs through the forest, you know, some different kind of stuff. I like to experiment with different, you know, passive building designs and different stuff like that. I built a cob, you know, a cob-based uh, chicken coop last year. And then uh, this winter I wanted to, I built a greenhouse and I'm trying to be as passive as I can in it, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm doing some thermal mass storage with some water jugs and stuff like that. And it's still really experimental. But this winter I built a, a rocket mass heater. So for people that aren't familiar, it's a, it's a kind of wood stove, but it's the, instead of the pipes kind of leaving and exhausting up like they would, they actually exhaust through a thermal mass or a thermal storage. So it actually goes through a bunch of dirt or whatever you're using for thermal mass. So that as that hot air is exhausting and leaving, it's heating up this mass and kind of becoming a thermal battery is what they refer to. So it's been uh, it's been a fun little a fun little project. Unfortunately, doing it in winter time is you know terrible. You know you you think you know you need to make cob out of mud and you need to you know mix up dirt and you know try to pack it tightly around your all your heat vents and stuff like that. So you know I've been slowly heating up a little bit at a time and trying. So it's it's finally built. It still needs to be warm enough so that I can properly you know compress the mass and stuff like that. Because if you imagine, you know, the way it was frozen, the pipes run through and then it just thaws out the inside, evaporates all the water from the snow. So it's not, it's not currently heating the mass like it's, it's supposed to. It heats the mass a bit and it, and it gets hot. I mean, this weekend when we had full sun and I had the heater going, it was 36 degrees in the greenhouse. So, I mean, it, it works, you know, it really, between the sun, it, I mean, it heats up. So yeah, the rocket mass heater is an exciting little project for, um, you know, thermal mass and, uh, you know, passive building design. But I'm hoping next winter, you know, when I have it for the full winter and I've, you know, did some modifications and some different stuff that it's going to be pretty successful. Everything I've read about it is super, super, super successful and everybody's super happy with them. So especially for applications like that, but it is super efficient. You know, like you say, you'll put, you fill up the feed chamber which is, you know, 24 inches by 24 inches. So essentially one log cut up into pieces. It burns for 45 minutes. It throws off, you know, huge heat for that 45 minutes. And then it heats up your, your bench, you know, which gets up to, you know, 30 degrees-ish, 40 degrees-ish, and then slowly dissipates heat over time. You know, so for that kind of thing, for a greenhouse or something passive, it works really well. 
Is that your goal to be uh, growing in your greenhouse next winter? Yeah, so I'm using it, uh, like the plan is more for propagation. Some of the early propagation techniques and stuff like that need a, you know, kind of an area like that. That's, you know, warmer and earlier season. So I can do some of my uh, cuttings and stuff like that. I'm going to put my, my sand beds and different things in there and then potentially starting some seedlings. A lot of uh, some of the native plants and native varieties we sell can be grown by seeds. So starting seedlings in there early in the season and stuff like that. Okay, that's really cool. Um, those that heat mass there that like that makes a lot of sense. I think that's one thing I've been seeing is uh, uh, like it's a lot of times our our energy usage is just we're not we're not really maximizing the efficiency of the energy we're burning, right? So like using that that rocket mass heater where you're heating up uh, the the geosync there, the heat sink, it's going to radiate over time all that heat and you only burn wood for 45 minutes instead of say you have to feed it all the time right and it's going to maintain probably a more consistent temperature and the same thing you yeah. mentioned with the, the water because uh we have a greenhouse there that has a big water tank in it as well and, and once once it gets warm in there like uh it's been getting up to about 30 degrees in there and i think now it's gonna keep staying above above zero and i think pretty soon we're probably gonna start throwing stuff out there yeah yeah, that's half the battle, right? Especially if you're doing any sort of passive, passive building or whatever, you're hard, trying to harness and store the energy, right? So the sun's only out in the day. So if you can, you know, this, not only does the mass heater heat the mass, but the sun, you know, the sun heats the mass, just having that thermal mass inside your greenhouse can help really store it. And then, you know, the water is a great, a great way to store the thermal mass, you know, and the sun, the sun's energy, and then it can come out overnight and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, we also saw on your page something about, uh, I guess, in the past, you were selling worms and you were looking into doing that again. Uh, what can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, I was I was I think at the time I was looking to just get some worms. So I have a small okay. uh, worm factory, a small vermicall poster in my uh, it's in the greenhouse now. It came out of the basement. So it's in there. And I was just looking for worms because it was a little bit uh, a little bit neglected. So. It's just another little experiment, you know, I like to, you know, like I say, dabble in a little bit of everything. So, you know, a little bit of vermicomposting. We haven't uh, sold worms in the past. There is a, there's a gentleman in town, Omir Organics, I think it's called. We've sold his worm castings last year. So he, he, he creates them at a larger scale and uh, mm -hmm. provides them for retail sales. So we sold some of those last year. Okay. Yeah, we were looking at getting some, so that's why that kind of stuck, uh, stood out to us a little bit, and that's why we kind of figured we'd ask. Yeah, what'd you say his name was? Boromir? Ormir. O-M-I-R-U-R, something like that. Ormir Organics. He does okay. uh, worm casting. It's not his name. His name's something normal. That's the business. Jim or something, but yeah. Yeah, he's a great, he's a great guy. He was out a few times last year, and but he's doing, uh, he's doing that as a larger scale. Yeah, the worm composting has been been great. I, I mean, years ago when I was doing it regularly, like the amount of, you know, the amount of organics it can process at a quick, quick rate is pretty impressive, you know, where if you have a traditional compost pile, it takes, you know, one or two seasons to mature enough, right? But, you know, when I had my little worm factory going, you know, within a month, you know, you're cycling the trays and you're getting kind of, you know, maybe a gallon of material every month, you know, so it worked quite well. Then you're getting the, you know, the fluids coming out the bottom, you know, what they call the leachate. And there's ways to process that into like a really desirable compost as well. 
Okay, so that must be like part of their waste product that kind of comes out the bottom. And you, uh, so what would you do to process that to use that? There's a, you gotta, I mean, it's something I didn't actually do. There's a, you know, there's a bubbling it and diluting it and stuff like that to, you know, change the chemistry somehow, you know, not, not just something with an air stone and water and enough time or something. Okay. Do you uh, use any type of fertilizer for your trees or do you? No, I'm so I like to keep to you know my really kind of permacultural homesteading practices so I don't don't use any sort of active fertilizer I don't use you know any sort of commercial anything any sort of pellets any sort of liquids you know the biggest thing I do is just just mulch 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 and some some compost you know so if I have some some nice compost like last year we sold the uh the Meeker's mix the um fish compost from Vancouver Island it's really quite quite premium stuff so put a little layer of that down then I'll put my this is similar to what I do either when I'm rejuvenating an old tree or when I'm planting a tree put some sort of desirable compost down a little bit I'll put my uh, newspaper or cardboard and then I'll just put as much mulch as I can a super thick layer of wood chips or, or leaves you know and that guy in uh, you know October November driving around the neighborhood you know filling up bags of leaves, bags of leaves, bags of leaves, and just adding that organic matter to the, you know, the orchard floor every year. Yeah. You know, it's perfect. I just, you know, take out, open up the bags, put put the bag down first and just pour the leaves right on top of them. And it'll just, you know, decompose, hold moisture. You know, mulching is one of the keys to successfully growing, you know, a fruit tree or a shrub, you know, just to hold moisture, to add nutrients, to keep down pests and competition is like the most important, best thing you could do and just mulch around your trees. Yeah. And uh, what kind of issues would you say or challenges uh, would you, do you face with the trees living here in the North more than you would anywhere else? Well, of course the climate, I mean, the climate's going to be the toughest one, right? So just selecting a good, a good tree and being aware of your local conditions and microclimates and stuff. Right. So People with a nice, you know, lakeshore property with, you know, crazy wind all the time and stuff might want to choose slightly hardier plants, right? So choosing that and then, you know, getting through the, getting through the winters with your plants is the, one of the things. I, I, I've occasionally had, you know, a grazing animal come through and, you know, take a little bit of, of fruit, but it's not a huge issue. You know, I back right on to forest you know and I have a little neighborhood kind of across the street it's just like a different little place but you know I have bears come through the property on a regular basis and they're more interested in the trash or a popsicle stick the kids leave on the ground you know that pretty much ignores the fruit trees so I know I don't have too many problems like that okay you know the biggest you know the biggest problem and the, the thing that's killed most of my trees is just you know doing things wrong you know when I first started I just you know, stuck trees wherever I wanted, wherever I thought, you know, would be a good place for me, not for the tree, you know, and didn't really, you know, cut the grass around it and, you know, whacked it with the whippersnapper maybe and made some, you know, simple mistakes, you know, they are, you know, they are susceptible to those kind of things to, you know, us, you know, just killing them. So most of the problems I've had is, is with that, really. Mm. So when you're looking out for a spot to put it in your yard, then what are you looking for, for uh, ideal characteristics? Yeah. So you're looking at, you know, of course, sun, you know, most big fruit trees or trees want full sun, you know, so definitely something that doesn't get too, too much, too, too much shade. Right. So looking at that kind of thing, and then just your, your soil conditions, 
and the competition, which is another big thing. So, you know, if you have a bunch of mature pines or spruce in your yard, you know, you have to imagine the roots on those, you know, is just dramatic, right? Mm-hmm. So you're one big, you know, one big spruce on the corner of your property is probably, you know, close to the foundation of your house, the roots, right? So thinking that you're going to plant an apple tree right in the middle of your yard, you know, 20 feet from, you know, the spruce, you know, it's going to be a problem because of the competition from the roots and stuff like that. And then um, your soil conditions and moisture levels. So if you're any place that kind of holds a lot of water, you know, starts puddling up in the, in the spring and gets wet, you know, for too long, you know, that becomes an issue. You have to do some certain things to kind of plant it higher, create a mound for the tree and stuff like that. But uh, like the competition and the, the moisture are the most important things. And, and of course the sun. But that, I think the competition is something people underestimate a lot is they plant it too, too close to big, big mature trees that have, you know, huge root systems and they'll steal a lot of everything from, from under there. Is there anything you kind of do to kind of be able to still do it? Like, is there something you could do or is it just not a good spot at all? (laughs) No, like, you know, your trees, your trees always going to be stunted. So if you, if you want your apple tree to be, you know, eight or 10 feet, or you want your shrub to stay smaller, sometimes planting it with competition can, you know, change those growth parameters, you know, it'll never get too big. Right. So it may be, it may be beneficial, you know, definitely, you know, you want to dig an extra wide hole. You want to really hack the roots away, you know, Mm -hmm. cut off everything. The big tree's not going to mind, you know, if you cut, you know, a six foot section of its roots off, you know, so do that. And then, um, you know, you could put, you could put it a little bit higher so that it has some of its own new, new dirt that it's kind of got just for itself. And then, and then the mulching and the, uh, you know really smothering it and that kind of stuff so it's a highly nutrient dense area can help that kind of makes me think too that like uh so i'm thinking about our backyard where we have a lot of trees and there would be a lot of root competition and i was thinking to myself that it might make a sense make sense to maybe do like say a shrub or a bush of some kind like because uh, you were mentioning other different varieties you had of shrubs and bushes so what, what about something like that yeah there's a, there's a lot of shrubs that compete quite well and there's other shrubs that you know don't don't compete at all you know the sour cherries are uh you know a particularly kind of dainty plant like it needs you know it doesn't compete at all at all you know so you know avoiding things like that things like you know raspberries strawberries i mean they can be planted as companions you know in the shade of something you know mm-hmm. um currants elderberries they like they like the shade you know they don't they don't mind that kind of stuff at all so there's certainly there's certainly varieties that do well. So it's trying to pick and choose the locations, you know, for those things. Okay. And I'm thinking too, like our backyard, the way our backyard goes, it's kind of like rocky the way it goes up, but there's a, there's a few different uh, pine trees and there was some maple trees there and some birch. So, I mean, they were, they were fairly big. So I imagine there must be something for them to dig into. So like, I mean, uh, if, if you had like an apple tree or something like that, you need to have like a fairly deep hole dug for it to actually have roots. Like, cause I'm, my concern would be that I say wouldn't have enough depth to, to really uh, accompany a plant like that. Maybe. Yeah. You won't know, you know, you know, won't know until you try trees often will live just about anywhere you planted. You know, you alluded to that, to, you know, trees growing out of rocks, trees growing out of old structures, you know, oftentimes, you know, nature will find a way. And it, it might grow or thrive, you know, it might not have the longevity as another tree, but, you know, if you're going to be in the house for 
20 or 40 years, that might be enough. You know, you don't need the tree to live 200 years if you're not going to be there 200 years, right? Mm. So, I mean, of course, you know, the ideal conditions are better, but you could get away with, you know, planting it into a, you know, a, a shallow hole and, you know, just hoping it goes out laterally more. You know, you might want to mulch some more. You might want to feed it some more. You know, people grow, you know, some of our, some of our trees and some of our stuff in pots, right? And, you know, that's a, not a great condition for it, but if you're, you know, managing the soil conditions, if you're more rigorous with your water and stuff like that, then, you know, you, it, it can survive and grow. You just have to be aware of those conditions and then treat them accordingly. Supplemental water, things like that. Okay. Yeah, I guess it is kind of a little bit of you got to be willing to just kind of try it and go here, go there, try with, uh, like, try to make it work. I mean, you don't really know it's going to work until you try it. Because I mean, as much as we could sort of talk about it sort of in theory, right? Like you don't know about the spot in my yard that I'm really talking about. And I don't really know how deep I can dig in. So yeah, and you don't know if, you know, somebody dug it out and poured, you know, gravel in there when they redid your driveway 10 years ago, you know? before you bought the place like that might not be something you know until you put the shovel in the ground right so right. you know when we when we recommend people to you know when people want recommendations on where to plant and stuff i tell them to do some of those things you know dig out your soil and see what it's like you know put a stake in the ground for a, a week you know and see if it's going to be an eyesore see if it's where you want to see it see if it gets enough sun during the day you know taking you know, if you want to, if you just want to plant one apple tree, you want it to be really successful and ideal and, you know, take a look at some of those kind of, those kind of conditions, you know, and, and have that, you know, go in with that mindful approach of what you're going to, what you're going to do. I think that's important, you know, and I've definitely, I've taught a lot of people to buy a lot of trees, you know, like I'm not around just to, just to sell trees to people that are going to go and die. Right. There's a lot of people that with ambition, ambitious plans, you know, they want trees and they're going to plant them in there you know, quarter acre backyard and, you know, I've never planted a tree before, you know, I convince them to, you know, start a little bit small, you know, see how things go. Like, you know, so just being mindful of that when you're planting, or if you're, you know, if you're willing to accept the loss and just plant like crazy, then you'll learn along the way, which is pretty much, pretty much what I did. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's nice to hear though, too, that you, uh, cause I, I know, especially when we talk to a lot of different people who start getting involved and thinking about, uh, uh, permaculture type of ideals and growing their own food and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's one of the things that you kind of run into is like, Oh, you got these big ideas sort of in the beginning, you go and you kill a bunch of stuff or you get discouraged or a combination yeah. of those things. So it's good to be mindful of that. And then another thing that I remember too, that you were saying earlier, you were talking about like the longevity of say a tree. So I guess that means that like, say a tree growing in less than optimal conditions, you could have grow for a few years, but then at some point it sort of dies off versus a tree that lives in ideal conditions will live like a very long time. So does that mean like it sort of depletes the nutrients or of the area of where it's at, or it just gets out competed by the surrounding things? Like what, what really makes the difference between say a short lived tree and a long lived tree? Yeah, it'll be, it'll be exactly that, like what you alluded to, it'll be the growing conditions, right? So if it's in a kind of an ideal area, it doesn't have competition, you know, it doesn't experience a, a flood one year or different things like that, you know, it'll be, it'll be happy and live forever. But yeah, if it's really, if it's really struggling, you know, and you'll see that the trees that just aren't doing well, you know, they struggle for a couple of years, they don't put on a lot of new growth, you know, they grow differently when they're kind of stressed. So you see these different kind of things and you can kind of, 
you can kind of know. I've seen some, some of mine I've seen, you know, stressed for a year or two. And then I really go and, you know, turn some soil, do some things, you know, do a, you know, a whole new mulch layer and stuff like that. And they can, they can bounce back, you know, or go for a few more years. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, like that, that's a thing that we've talked about for a long time. And it's kind of funny, like uh, we've wanted say fruit trees for a long time, but then we keep thinking like, oh, where are we going to plant it and all that kind of stuff. But then you kind of kick yourself in the ass because really, you know, if that tree was already there, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be already have fruit off of it. Right. Yeah. Instead of thinking about planting. Yeah, that's the, that's one of the sayings, right? The, the best time to plant a tree was last year and the next best time is right now, you know? So yeah, the sooner you get in the ground, the better, right? They need any time to grow and things like that. So, and, you know, definitely, you know, give it a try. And, you know, if you follow a few principles, your tree will probably, you know, do just fine. And you said a lot of your trees are already on the third year when you're selling them, which would mean... Yeah, most of them are, most of them are at least three to four years old when they come from the nurseries. And so, so like when we would have, you know, plant them, there would be fruit in the first year or the second year or so, right? Is that correct? Oftentimes, yeah. Oftentimes people have fruit within the second year, you know, and if you're, if you're treating the tree right and doing certain things to help it fruit, you know, it, it usually will. You have to have a, you know, like a pollinator. So you'll need something close by, whether it's a second tree of your own or your neighbors or something like that. So paying attention to those kind of things, but yeah, no, there's a lot of people with really, really successful trees, right? So you know, we really stress a lot of that education portion, you know, as much as the, you know, just selling a tree, you know, we want you to succeed, right? So, you know, we're going to start you off with the right tree, but making sure you're, you know, you're doing it just right. So there is a, you know, there is a bit of educational content on the site. There's an associated YouTube channel with me going on and on about stuff, you know, so trying to, um, you know, trying to offer that piece, you know, most people, when they come and buy their tree, they're spending, you know, 10, 15 minutes going through a rundown. A lot of people have a tree they planted before. They just want to kind of troubleshoot problems, you know, so we do a lot of that kind of stuff, you mm. know. And I imagine too, when you plant, you're having something that you want to pollinate your plant, it must be like another, is it just like another fruit tree or does it have to be another apple tree or because it was crab apples we mentioned earlier, but could like... If, say if you have a, a pine tree in your yard that throws pollen, I mean, that's not going to work, right? No, no, it has to be the same, the same species, right? So, you know, pears have to pollinate pears, apples pollinate apples. Uh, you know, when you get into the cherries and the plums, like the prunus family is, they're all kind of similar. So there are some cherries that'll pollinate plums and some plums that'll pollinate cherries. And there's some overlap with that kind of thing because they're all in the same actual family but generally you need the same the same species you know so an apple and apple a pear and a pear okay yeah like so a crab apple is in that is a you know a latin malice it's in the same family right so a crab apple will pollinate an apple you know so if they're in the same the same family species they'll they'll pollinate okay and then so uh you were mentioning different species of apples that they say were growing uh down south around Ottawa or something. So what, what's the varieties of apples that say you sell that do well up here? Yeah, so two of, two of my our favorites are Gemini and Goodland apples. They're, they're excellent, you know, firm, crisp, you know, big, fresh-eating apples. So those are two of our, two of our, our favorites. Prairie Sensation is a great apple. Um, uh, Norland and Norkent are, are really, really hardy apples. They do really well. A little bit earlier season, but they're excellent apples. And then um, 
those are the those are the main ones. We do have a few other ones here or there. They they have other desirable qualities too. You know, that's something we'll go through when people buy an apple too. You know, what other kind of apple do you like? You know, do you want it for cooking? Do you want it more for fresh eating? You know, because some apples are are super soft with you know really thin skin. So when you make your crisper pie and you don't peel it, you don't even notice that you left the skin on. You know, and other ones are more firm skinned. You know, other ones store better. You know, oftentimes people want like a longer harvest period. So you'll get kind of an August apple, a mid-September and a late September apple. So you're getting a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of different times for your apples. Yeah. So yeah, the, generally they're not names you would names you would recognize. Well, I mean, that's kind of fun because another thing that we've been sort of learning when talking to other people too is uh, we got to kind of discover what the taste of Sudbury is in a way or a taste of this Northern Ontario area. It's because you know, all of the food we get kind of comes from somewhere else. We don't really know what food tastes like that's grown here until we really start exploring the varieties of food that will actually grow here. So like growing something yeah. like a Gemini apple, like I've never heard of, it's like, well, you give it a shot. And I imagine it's a great apple because I've had, I've had apples that have been grown in places like this and they're just fine. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing you brought up because that's something that interests me quite a bit is that there are, you know, are people in the city that historically grew apples from seed right and they'll say you know one in a thousand apples from seed is actually good and desirable and will grow here right so it's a you know but if everybody else is planting apples you know one thing i like kind of doing is learning from people that have an apple tree in their yard that you know they think planted from a seed you know and trying to check out some of those apples and maybe you know doing some grafting of those onto onto my trees and experimenting with that and just having the different genetic diversity in our in our trees too right which I think is it, which I think is an important long term, you know, looking at some of that genetic diversity thing. Yeah, it's a cool idea, right? Because if they've grown here, then they're already accustomed to this climate. So just uh, producing more of those apples might be good. Yeah, so that's something that this year and you know further season that I want to take more, you know, take more interest in, you know, finding some you know particularly neglected crab apple trees and using those for you know rootstock trees and stuff like that assuming that they have you know really good you know vigorous qualities and stuff so keeping kind of those things in mind and doing things more you know as natural as they can hmm. yeah and, and even like uh if if, you, if a person had space to do it say planting just different apple seeds from apples you grow in around the area and see what you get and all that kind of thing might be one of those things that like you know one in a thousand you don't get but say i mean you're going to be living there for however many years and you got time it's like you grow it see what happens if it's no good cut the tree down plant another one on you go i mean i mean yeah. I, don't know, I don't know how much you could accomplish in the in that kind of lifetime doing it but i mean you might you might get a couple good apples you think yeah no i definitely have a few like a few customers that plant plant apple trees and they tell me every year how they're growing you know and you know some you know some people have some success and they enjoy the apples they've grown from seed you know oftentimes you know they're have undesirable qualities but you know if depending on what you want it for you know if you've got lots of room then you're gonna like an extra apple tree and you want to feed the birds like you know it's great plant an apple tree from from seed you know and help you know increase the genetic diversity and stuff yeah well uh thank you very much for coming and talking to us and, and uh teaching us a little bit about uh what it goes into grafting and pruning maintaining uh taking care of these kind of trees and stuff so for anyone who's listening, would you like to let them know uh, how they could say, get a hold of uh, some of your trees? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, we have the website, the beautifulfieldsfarm.com. We have the associated, you know, 
social media is Instagram, Facebook. You could follow follow there, and then um, the YouTube channel for some of the educational content and, and stuff. We usually um, the last couple of years, due to demand, what we do is we launch the website usually sometime around end of March for ordering, and then when the trees come in 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 April, we you know start selling them and arranging pickups and stuff like that it's just been uh, there's been so much interest in this in the last few years it's the only way to really keep up great okay great thank you very much thank you yeah well nice to nice to meet you guys great to yes, chat nice. today